This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. A Miscellany of Men by G. K. Chesterton Section 2 The Man Who Thinks Backwards The man who thinks backwards is a very powerful person today. Indeed, if he is not omnipotent, he is at least omnipresent. It is he who writes nearly all the learned books and articles, especially of the scientific or skeptical sort, all the articles on eugenics and social evolution and prison reform and the higher criticism, and all the rest of it. But especially it is this strange and torturous being who does most of the writing about female emancipation and the reconsidering of marriage. For the man who thinks backward is very frequently a woman. Thinking backwards is not quite easy to define abstractly, and perhaps the simplest method is to take some object as plain as possible and from it illustrate the two modes of thought the right mode in which all real results have been rooted the wrong mode which is confusing all our current discussions especially our discussions about the relations of the sexes casting my eye round the room i notice an object which is often mentioned in the higher and subtler of these debates about the sexes i mean a poker I will take a poker and think about it, first forwards and then backwards, and so perhaps show what I mean. The sage, desiring to think well and wisely about a poker, will begin somewhat as follows. Among the live creatures that crawl about this star, the queerest is the thing called man. This plucked and plumeless bird, comic and forlorn, is the butt of all the philosophies. He is the only naked animal, and this quality, once it is said, his glory is now his shame. He has to go outside himself for everything that he wants. He might almost be considered as an absent-minded person who had gone bathing and left his clothes everywhere, so that he has hung his hat upon the beaver, his coat upon the sheep. The rabbit has white warmth for a waistcoat, and the glowworm has a lantern for a head, but man has no heat in his hide, and the light in his body is darkness. And he must look for light and warmth in the wild, cold universe in which he is cast. This is equally true of his soul and of his body. He is the one creature that has lost his heart as much as he has lost his hide. In a spiritual sense, he has taken leave of his senses, and even in a literal sense, he has been unable to keep his hair on. And just as this external need of his has lit in his dark brain the dreadful star called religion, so it has lit in his hand the only adequate symbol of it. I mean the red flower called fire. Fire, the most magic and startling of all material things, is the thing known only to man and the expression of his sublime externalism. It embodies all that is human in his hearth and all that is divine on his altars. It is the most human thing in the world, seen across wastes of march or medleys of forest. It is veritably the purple and golden flag of the sons of Eve. But there is about this generous and rejoicing thing an alien and awful quality, the quality of torture. 
Its presence is life, its touch is death. Therefore it is always necessary to have an intermediary between ourselves and this dreadful deity, to have a priest to intercede for us with the god of life and death, to send an ambassador to the fire. That priest is the poker. Made of a material more merciless and warlike than the other instruments of domesticity, hammered on the anvil and borne itself in the flame, the poker is strong enough to enter the burning fiery furnace, and like the holy children not to be consumed. In this heroic service it is often battered and twisted, but is the more honorable for it, like any other soldier who has been under fire. Now all this may sound very fanciful and mystical, but it is the right view of pokers, and no one who takes it will ever go in for any wrong view of pokers, such as using them to beat one's wife or torture one's children, or even, though that is more excusable, to make a policeman jump, as the clown does in his pantomime. He who has thus gone back to the beginning and seen everything as quaint and new will always see things in their right order the one depending on the other in degree of purpose and importance, the poker for the fire and the fire for the man, and the man for the glory of God. This is thinking forwards. Now our modern discussions about everything, imperialism, socialism, or votes for women, are all entangled in an opposite train of thought, which runs as follows. A modern intellectual comes in and sees a poker, he is a positivist. He will not begin with any dogmas about the nature of man or any daydreams about the mystery of fire. He will begin with what he can see, the poker. And the first thing he sees about the poker is that it is crooked. He says, poor poker, it's crooked. Then he asks how it came to be crooked and is told that there is a thing in the world with which his temperament has hitherto left him unacquainted, a thing called fire. He points out very kindly and clearly how silly it is of people, if they want a straight poker, to put it into a chemical combustion which will very probably heat and warp it. Let us abolish fire, he says, and then we shall have perfectly straight pokers. Why should you want a fire at all? They explain to him that a creature called man wants a fire, because he has no fur or feathers. He gazes dreamily at the embers for a few seconds, and then shakes his head. I doubt if such an animal is worth preserving, he says. He must eventually go under in the cosmic struggle when pitted against well-armored and warmly protected species who have wings and trunks and spires and scales and horns and shaggy hair. If man cannot live without these luxuries, you had better abolish man. At this point, as a rule, the crowd is convinced. It heaves up all its clubs and axes and abolishes him, at least one of him. Before we begin discussing our various new plans for the people's welfare, let us make a kind of agreement that we will argue in a straightforward way, and not in a tail-foremost way. The typical modern movements may be right, but let them be defended because they are right, not because they are typical modern movements. Let us begin with the actual woman or man in the street, who is cold, like mankind, before the finding of fire. Do not let us begin with the end of the last red-hot discussion, like the end of a red-hot poker. Imperialism may be right, but if it is right, it is right because England has some divine authority like Israel, 
or some human authority like Rome, not because we have saddled ourselves with South Africa and don't know how to get rid of it. Socialism may be true, but if it is true, it is true because the tribe or the city can really declare all land to be common land, not because Herod's stores exist and the commonwealth must copy them. Female suffrage may be just, but if it is just, it is just because women are women, not because women are sweated workers and white slaves and all sorts of things that they ought never to have been. Let not the imperialist accept a colony because it is there, nor the suffragist seize a vote because it is lying about, nor the socialist buy up an industry merely because it is for sale. Let us ask ourselves first what we really do want, not what recent legal decisions have told us to want, or recent logical philosophies prove that we must want, or recent social prophecies predicted that we shall some day want. If there must be a British Empire, let it be British, and not in mere panic, American or Prussian. If there ought to be female suffrage, let it be female and not a mere imitation, as coarse as the male blackguard, or as dull as the male clerk. If there is to be socialism, let it be social, that is, as different as possible from all the big commercial departments of today. The really good journeyman tailor does not cut his coat according to his cloth. He asks for more cloth. The really practical statesman does not fit himself to existing conditions. He denounces the conditions as unfit. History is like some deeply planted tree, which, though gigantic in girth, tapers away at last into tiny twigs, and we are in the topmost branches. Each of us is trying to bend the tree by a twig, to alter England through a distant colony, or capture the state through a small state department, or to destroy all voting through a vote. In all such bewilderment he is wise, who resists this temptation of trivial triumph for surrender, and happy in an echo of the Roman poet, who remembers the roots of things. THE NAMELESS MAN There are only two forms of government, the monarchy or personal government, and the republic or impersonal government. England is not a government, England is an anarchy, because there are so many kings. But there is one real advantage, among many real disadvantages, in the method of abstract democracy, and that is this, that under impersonal government politics are so much more personal. In France and America, where the state is an abstraction, political argument is quite full of human details. Some might even say of inhuman details. But in England, precisely because we are ruled by personages, these personages do not permit personalities. In England, names are honored, and therefore names are suppressed. But in the republics, in France especially, a man can put his enemy's names into his article, and his own name at the end of it. This is the essential condition of such candor. If we merely made our anonymous articles more violent, we should be baser than we are now. 
we should only be alarming masked men with daggers instead of cudgels. And I, for one, have always believed in the more general signing of articles, and have signed my own articles on many occasions when, heaven knows, I had little reason to be vain of them. I have heard many arguments for anonymity, but they all seem to amount to the statement that anonymity is safe, which is just what I complain of. In matters of truth, the fact that you don't want to publish something is nine times out of ten a proof that you ought to publish it. But there is one answer to my perpetual plea for a man putting his name to his writing. There is one answer, and there is only one answer, and it is never given. It is that in the modern complexity, very often a man's name is almost as false as his pseudonym. The prominent person today is eternally trying to lose a name and to get a title. For instance, we all read with earnestness and patience the pages of the Daily Mail. And there are times when we feel moved to cry, Bring to us the man who thought these strange thoughts. Pursue him, capture him, take great care of him. Bring him back to us tenderly like some precious bale of silk that we may look upon his face of the man who desires such things to be printed. Let us know his name, his social and medical pedigree. But in the modern muddle, it might be said, how little should we gain if those frankly fatuous sheets were indeed subscribed by the man who had inspired them? Suppose that, after every article, stating that the Premier is a piratical socialist, there were printed the simple word Northcliffe. What does that simple word suggest to the simple soul? To my simple soul, uninstructed otherwise, it suggests a lofty and lonely crag somewhere in the wintry seas toward the Orkneys or Norway, and barely clinging to the top of this crag, the fortress of some forgotten chieftain. As it happens, of course, I know that the word does not mean this. It means another Fleet Street journalist like myself, or only different from myself in so far, as he has sought to secure money, while I have sought to secure a jolly time. A title does not now even serve as a distinction. It does not distinguish. A coronet is not merely an extinguisher. It is a hiding place. But the really odd thing is this. This false quality in titles does not merely apply to the new and vulgar titles, but to the old and historic titles also. For hundreds of years, titles in England have been essentially unmeaning, void of that very weak and very human instinct in which titles originated. In essential nonsense of application, there is nothing to choose between Northcliffe and Northfolk. The Duke of Norfolk means, as my exquisite and laborious knowledge of Latin informs me, the leader of Norfolk. It is idle to talk against representative government or for it. All government is representative government until it begins to decay. Unfortunately, as is also evident, all government begins to decay the instant it begins to govern. All aristocrats were first meant as envoys of democracy and most envoys of democracy lose no time in becoming aristocrats. By the old essential human notion, the Duke of Norfolk ought simply to be the first or most manifest of Norfolk men. I see, growing and filling out before me, the image of an actual Duke of Norfolk. For instance, Norfolk men all make their voices run up very high at the end of a sentence. 
The Duke of Norfolk's voice, therefore, ought to end in a perfect shriek. They often, I am told, end sentences with the word together, entirely irrespective of its meaning. Thus I shall expect the Duke of Norfolk to say, I beg to second the motion together, or this is the great constitutional question together. I shall expect him to know much about the broads and the sluggish rivers above them, to know about the shooting of waterfowl, and not to know too much about anything else. Of mountains he must be wildly and ludicrously ignorant. He must have the freshness of Norfolk, nay, even the flatness of Norfolk. He must remind me of the watery expanses, the great square church towers, and the long level sunsets of East England. And if he does not do this, I decline to know him. I need not multiply such cases. The principle applies everywhere. Thus I lose all interest in the Duke of Devonshire, unless he can assure me that his soul is filled with that strange warm Puritanism, Puritanism shot with romance, which colors the West Country. He must eat nothing but clotted cream, drink nothing but cider, reading nothing but Lorna Doone, and be unacquainted with any town larger than Plymouth, which he must regard with some awe as the central Babylon of the world. Again, I should expect the Prince of Wales always to be full of the mysticism and dreamy ardour of the Celtic fringe. Perhaps it may be thought that these demands are a little extreme, and that our fancy is running away with us. Nevertheless, it is not my Duke of Devonshire who is funny, but the real Duke of Devonshire. The point is that the scheme of titles is a misfit throughout. Hardly anywhere do we find a modern man whose name and rank represent in any way his type, his locality, or his mode of life. As a mere matter of social comedy, the thing is worth noticing. You will meet a man whose name suggests a gouty admiral, and you will find him exactly like a timid organist. You will hear announce the name of a haughty and almost heathen grand dame, and behold the entrance of a nice smiling Christian cook. These are like complications of the central fact of the falsification of all names and ranks. Our peers are like a party of medieval knights who should have exchanged shields, crests, and pennons. For the present rule seems to be that the Duke of Sussex may lawfully own the whole of Essex, and that the Marquis of Cornwall may own all the hills and valleys, so long as they are not Cornish. The clue to all this tangle is as simple as it is terrible. If England is an aristocracy, England is dying. If this system is the country, as some say, the country is stiffening into more than the pomp and paralysis of China. It is the final sign of imbecility in a people that it calls cats dogs and describes the sun as the moon, and it is very particular about the preciseness of these pseudonyms. To be wrong and to be carefully wrong, that is the definition of decadence. The disease called aphasia in which people begin by saying tea when they mean coffee, commonly ends in their silence. Silence of this stiff sort is the chief mark of the powerful parts of modern society. They all seem straining to keep things in, rather than to let things out. But the kings of finance, speechlessness is counted as a way of being strong, though it should rather be counted as a way of being sly. By this time the Parliament does not parley any more than the Speaker speaks. 
Even the newspaper editors and proprietors are more despotic and dangerous by what they do not utter than by what they do. We have all heard the expression golden silence. The expression brazen silence is the only adequate phrase for our editors. If we wake out of this throttled, gasping and wordless nightmare, we must awake with a yell. The revolution that releases England from the fixed falsity of its present position will not be less noisy than other revolutions. It will contain, I fear, a great deal of that rude accomplishment described among little boys as calling names. That will not matter much, so long as they are the right names. The Gardener and the Guinea Strictly speaking, there is no such thing as an English peasant. Indeed, the type can only exist in community. So much does it depend on cooperation and common law. One must not think primarily of a French peasant any more than of a German measle. The plural of the word is its proper form. You cannot have a peasant until you have a peasantry. The essence of the peasant ideal is equality, and you cannot be equal all by yourself. Nevertheless, because human nature always craves and half-creates the things necessary to its happiness, there are approximations and suggestions of the possibility of such a race even here. The nearest approach I know to the temper of a peasant in England is that of the country gardener, not, of course, the great scientific gardener attached to the great houses. He is a rich man's servant like any other. I mean the small jobbing gardener who works for two or three moderate-sized gardens, who works on his own, who sometimes even owns his house, and who frequently owns his tools. This kind of man has really some of the characteristics of the true peasants, especially the characteristics that people don't like. He has none of that irresponsible mirth which is the consolation of most poor men in England. The gardener is even disliked sometimes by the owners of the shrubs and flowers, because, like Micaiah, he prophesies, not good concerning them, but evil. The English gardener is grim, critical, self-respecting, sometimes even economical. Nor is this, as the reader's lightning wit will flash back at me, merely because the English gardener is always a Scotch gardener. The type does exist in pure South English blood and speech. I have spoken to the type. I was speaking to the type only the other evening, when a rather odd little incident occurred. It was one of those wonderful evenings in which the sky was warm and radiant, while the earth was still comparatively cold and wet. But it is of the essence of spring to be unexpected as in that heroic and hackneyed line about coming before the swallow dares. Spring never is spring unless it comes too soon, and on a day like that one might pray without any profanity that spring might come on earth as it was in heaven. The gardener was gardening. I was not gardening. It is needless to explain the causes of the difference. It would be to tell the tremendous history of two souls. It is needless, because there is a more immediate explanation of the case. The gardener and I, if not equal in agreement, were at least equal in difference. It is quite certain that he would not have allowed me to touch the garden if I had gone down on my knees to him, 
and it is by no means certain that I should have consented to touch the garden if he had gone down on his knees to me. His activity and my idleness, therefore, went on steadily side by side throughout the long sunset hours. And all the time I was thinking what a shame it was that he was not sticking his spade into his own garden instead of mine. He knew about the earth and the underworld of seeds, the resurrection of spring, and the flowers that appear in order like a procession marshalled by a herald. He possessed the garden intellectually and spiritually, while I only possess it politically. I know more about flowers than coal owners know about coal, or at least I pay them honour when they are brought above the surface of the earth. I know more about gardens than railway shareholders seem to know about railways, for at least I know that it needs a man to make a garden, a man whose name is Adam. But as I walked on that grass, my ignorance overwhelmed me, and yet that phrase is false, because it suggests something like a storm from the sky above. It is truer to say that my ignorance exploded underneath me, like a mine dug long before, and indeed it was dug before the beginning of the ages. Green bombs of bulbs and seeds were bursting underneath me everywhere. And so far as my knowledge went, they had been laid by a conspirator. I trod quite uneasily on this uprush of the earth. The spring is always only a fruitful earthquake. With the land all alive under me, I began to wonder more and more why this man, who had made the garden, did not own the garden. If I stuck a spade into the ground, I should be astonished at what I found there. And just as I thought this, I saw that the gardener was astonished too. Just as I was wondering why the man who used the spade did not profit by the spade, he brought me something he had found actually in my soil. It was a thin, worn gold piece of the Georges, of the sort which are called, I believe, spade guineas. Anyhow, a piece of gold. If you do not see the parable as I saw it just then, I doubt if I can explain it just now. He could make a hundred other round yellow fruits, and this flat yellow one is the only sort I can make. How it came there I have not a notion, unless Edmund Burke dropped it in his hurry to get back to Butler's Court. But there it was. This is a cold recital of facts. There may be a whole pirate's treasure lying under the earth there, for all I know, or care for there's no interest in a treasure without a treasure island to sail to. If there is a treasure, it will never be found, for I am not interested in wealth beyond the dreams of avarice, since I know that avarice has no dreams, but only insomnia. And for the other party, my gardener would never consent to dig up the garden. Nevertheless, I was overwhelmed with intellectual emotions when I saw that answer to my question the question of why the garden did not belong to the gardener. No better epigram could be put in reply than simply putting the spade guinea beside the spade. This was the only underground seed that I could understand. Only by having a little more of that dull, battered, yellow substance could I manage to be idle while he was active. I'm not altogether idle myself, but the fact remains that the power is in the thin slip of metal we call the spade guinea, not in the strong square curve of metal which we call the spade. And then I suddenly remembered that as I had found gold on my ground by accident, 
so richer men in the north and west counties had found coal in their ground also by accident. I told the gardener that as he had found the thing he ought to keep it, but that if he cared to sell it to me it could be valued properly and then sold. He said at first with characteristic independence that he would like to keep it. He said it would make a brooch for his wife, but a little later he brought it back to me without explanation. I could not get a ray of light on the reason of his refusal, but he looked lowering and unhappy. Had he some mystical instinct that it is just such accidental and irrational wealth that is the doom of all peasantries? Perhaps he dimly felt that the boy's pirate tales are true, and that buried treasure is a thing for robbers and not for producers. Perhaps he thought there was a curse on such capital, on the coal of the coal-owners, on the gold of the gold-seekers. Perhaps there is. End of section 2